So Lexi can attest to the fact that there's one place I always want to be during thunderstorms, and that's right next to the window. And I know there's recommendations when there's big, severe thunderstorms rolling through and things like that. They say, get away from windows, go to an interior part of your house, or go down to the basement. But I'm a classic Midwesterner in that I, I just want to see the storm. You know, if you had a, a, a dad who always would walk outside when the huge storm was rolling in, and he'd just stand out and stare at it. And, you know, maybe your mom was saying, get inside, get inside, the storm's coming. Well, I was a person, I'm always a person who wants to stand and wants to look at the storm. I want to watch it. I love just about everything about storms. I love the dark billowing clouds and watching them. I love that, that cold gust of air that you always get right before the rain hits, which is usually the signal that you should probably get inside. I love seeing the, the lightning as it flashes. I particularly love seeing that cloud-to-cloud -cloud lightning when you're watching a storm far off and you can see it kind of finger up through the clouds. I love hearing the rain on our roof. I love sleeping in the rain because I I, for some reason the pounding of the rain on the roof is just so calming. It's like good white noise. It helps me fall asleep. And I think that the, my favorite part about storms is the thunder, though. I love being able to hear the thunder, the, the, the clap of the thunder, the roll of the thunder. And I love that you can almost feel it, right, as much as you can hear it. It, it shakes, like, the windows of your house, and it actually shakes you. Like, you can feel the thunder kind of rumble underneath you. And I, I just love that. And that's why I love being near windows during storms. I want to be able to see it. I want to be able to take in all of the glory and the power of the storm. But there's also one place that I pretty much never want to be during a storm. And that's out in the storm. I like to be as close as I can be to it, right? Right up next to the window, as close as I can get to actually being out in the storm without actually being in the storm. I don't, I don't want the rain to be soaking me. I don't want to get struck by lightning. I don't want a tree to fall on me. I love the shelter of my house and then just getting as close as I can. There's something different about being caught in a storm versus seeing a storm, right? How many of you have, been, have ever been out hiking or been outside, maybe on a bike ride, and you've gotten caught in a huge thunderstorm, right? All of a sudden, that, that, that feeling of awe and wonder you have of the storm very quickly turns. It turns to a feeling of fear. And I've felt that a lot of times. I've been caught in severe thunderstorms while camping. I've been caught in a severe thunderstorm out on the top of a mountain while climbing, which is a really frightening place to be in a thunderstorm because there's no shelter. And the clouds are more around you than they are above you as you're up in this thunderstorm. I've been caught in a thunderstorm out in the ocean in a canoe. And that's incredibly frightening because... Speaking of nowhere to go, where do you go when you're out in a small little boat out in the ocean and a thunderstorm is rolling up on you? But they seem, storms, right, they seem to be able to bring out this we that weird mix of feelings in us. They bring out, on the one hand, that sense of awe, that sense of wonder, that sense of just pure love for that thing that you're looking at. This is in incredible. I love this. This is glorious. And on the other hand, they bring out a sense of fear because of their destructive power, which is something we've seen this week, Right? People in Iowa are still recovering from a derecho storm a couple weeks ago that had straight line winds of 130 miles an hour, at least that's what they estimated the strongest winds to be, and it flattened houses, it tore down trees, and there's still a lot of people who are traveling to Iowa to help with the cleanup. And just this week, Hurricane Laura came on shore in Louisiana. I know Chris is from Louisiana, so he's probably been following it closely as it came on shore, and we've probably, a lot of us have seen the pictures of destruction from that hurricane. 
And I believe we were made, though. We were made to look at thunderstorms, made to look at powerful storms and feel that weird mix of feelings because I believe that storms communicate something to us. They communicate something about glory. They communicate something about power, but not just about those things in relation to the force of nature. Storms speak to us. They communicate to us about our God, and they speak to us something that's meant to draw us to worship God, to see the storm and to cry glory, praise the Lord for his display of glory. And it's meant to draw us as well also to trust. So as we've been going through the Psalms, Josh already mentioned this, so I don't have to say a whole lot. As we've been going through the Psalms, we've been looking at different genres, at hymns, laments, songs of confidence, thanksgiving. We just got done with wisdom psalms, and now he said we're moving into divine kingship psalms. And I think the name is fairly self-explanatory, and Josh did a good job explaining it, that divine kingship psalms focus on God as the sovereign and victorious king of creation and of his people. So if you want a short definition of divine kingship psalms, it's that they focus on God as the sovereign and victorious king of creation and of his people. And we intentionally chose two kind of different divine kingship psalms. The one we're going to look at this week and the one that Chris is going to preach on next week, Psalm 97. They focus in a lot of ways on different aspects of God, and they teach us in a different way about the kingship of God. And so the two things that we're going to focus on mainly this week as we look at God's kingship is his glory and his power, and particularly his glory and power that is displayed to us in a powerful storm, in a powerful thunderstorm. So let's go this morning to God's holy and inerrant word. Let's look to Psalm 29, and let's see God revealing himself as the glorious and powerful king in the storm. So I'll give you a moment. Turn to Psalm 29. If you have a pew Bible, which not many of you probably do, it's on page Uh, 461. All right, please listen to the reading of God's word. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O glorious and mighty King, we praise you for showing yourself to us. 
God, we could never know you apart from your revelation, but in your grace, you have chosen to put your glory on display in your creation, that you've uh, revealed yourself to us uh, even more fully in your word and in your son. God, we're fully dependent on you to work in us and work in our hearts, work in our minds by your spirit as we go to your word, for us to understand your word correctly and for us to be able to apply it in our lives. So Father, speak in the preaching of your word. Draw us to worship and adore you and to trust in you more fully. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the big idea for you, and I know a lot of you like taking notes, so I'll say this slowly and I'll say it twice. The big idea this morning is this. Our king puts his glory and power on display for us to see so that we might worship and trust him. Our king puts his glory and power on display for us to see so that we might worship and trust him. One thing that we've been doing a lot as we've been going through the Psalms is kind of starting off with the 30,000 foot view of the Psalm and zooming out and kind of showing you the bigger, bigger structure. Psalms are often structured in a very intentional way that kind of is, is a flow for the praise that is being given or a flow for the thought. And so I want to do that this morning, kind of give us a roadmap and so look for me, look with me for a moment at Psalm 29 as a whole. I just want to point out a couple things that are going to help us move forward. So Psalm 29 is broken up into three major parts, and all of those parts are marked by a specific set of repetition. So if you look at Psalm 29, you'll probably be able to see those right away. Verses 1 through 2 are marked by the repetition of ascribe to the Lord. So we have three sets of ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. The second set is verses three through nine. And what is the repetition there? I'll let you guys look, look for it and notice it. The voice of the Lord. Right, good. Hopefully in, our, in preaching, we can help you guys to be able to look at Scripture well and to be able to notice things in Scripture. We want to help highlight stuff and help you to be better interpreters of Scripture. So Again, as we, as we preach, like, look up here, sure, but really be looking at Scripture. Be looking at the Word to be able to learn how to make uh, these observations. So that's good, yeah. The voice of the Lord. It's a repetition. We need to pay attention to that. Seven times in seven verses, we have the voice of the Lord. And then the last two verses, verses 10 and 11, are the third chunk, and there are two pieces of repetition in there. Verse t- in verse 10, you have the Lord sits enthroned twice. And in verse 11, you have may the Lord. So this psalm is full of repetition, if you look at it. And it gives us those three pieces, verses 1 through 2, verses 3 through 9, verses 10 through 11. Those are going to be our, our three big chunks as we go through the sermon. So let's, now let's, let's dive into the, the particulars. Let's dive into verses 1 and 2, that first section. And our, our main point from this first section is this. We must worship the king of glory and power. We must worship the king of glory and power. Like I've already mentioned, the repetition here is ascribe to the Lord three times. But what does it mean to ascribe something to the Lord? Some translations here have give to the Lord. They say give to the Lord glory and strength. 
And I think that's a fine translation, but it can leave us with this idea that we are adding something to the Lord. But it's not that God is missing any amount of glory or strength or glory or power. It's not when we give these things to him, we're adding to his glory or power or giving, giving him something that he doesn't already have. So I really like the translation of a scribe that we have here in the ESV. And it means that we declare that certain things are true about God. Or we say that God has specific qualities. So we're ascribing it to the Lord. So you could ascribe intelligence to a seminary professor, or you could ascribe compassion to a good nurse, or you could ascribe athleticism to Giannis Atenecupo or something like that, a great athlete. So that's what it means to ascribe, to declare that they have a specific quality. And I think you guys get the idea about that. And what's really interesting is as you go through these first two verses, each of these lines that begin ascribe to the Lord tell us something different about ascribing to the Lord. The first line, if you look, look with me there, first line tells us who should do the ascribing. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, or ascribe to the Lord, you angels. It's a, it's a call to worship, just like we have calls to worship at the beginning of our worship services. This is a call to worship to angels. It's an invitation for them to come and to praise the Lord. But it's also an invitation that throughout the Psalms is given to us. There's this really intentional parallelism between Psalm 29, the one we have here, and another divine kingship psalm, Psalm 96. And I want to read just a couple verses from Psalm 96 while you're looking at the first two verses of Psalm 29. And I want you to notice how similar the language is here even though the people that are called to worship are different. So this is from Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So in Psalm 96, the call is to all families of the earth, or all people, all the earth itself. All the earth is called to come and worship the Lord. So when you put these two calls to worship next to each other and understand that angels are called to worship the Lord and we are also called to worship the Lord, it highlights something really interesting and beautiful that happens when we come and we gather and we worship. When we as Livingstone come into this sanctuary and we sing songs, we're not the only ones that are worshiping the Lord. It is not just the people here. In a way that we can't fully grasp, fully understand, in a way that we can't see, we are literally joining with angels in heaven who are giving praise to our God. Just think about that for a moment. When we sing, oh, worship the King, all glorious above, or if we sing, holy, 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 we're not the only ones who are praising the Lord for his holiness. Even in that moment, we are joining with the throngs of angels who are before the face of God, and we are worshiping him. And that should inspire our praise. That should draw us to worship of our God. So the first line is, is who. It tells us who should worship the Lord or who should ascribe. The second line tells us what is being ascribed to the Lord. So if ascribing is, you know, declaring a specific quality, what qualities are we declaring to be true about God? It's his glory and his strength. And as we get into the second section, I'm going to explain more what that means, what his glory and his strength or glory and power. That's kind of where we get, got those two words in our main point, what those particularly mean. But right now I just want to 
briefly note that it's very instructive for us. It's very instructive for us that we see worship being something that involves ascribing qualities about God or these particular qualities of glory and strength. When we come and worship, part of what we're doing is we are declaring true things about God. We are ascribing true qualities about God. And that means a couple things for us. First, it means that we need to know our God, right? If we're going to declare things to be true about God in our worship, in the things that we sing, the things that we pray, our readings, we need to know our God and we need to know who he's revealed himself to be, which means we need to know his word. We should be very careful in our worship that the things that we say about God are true. We should never be careless with our theology. We should never be careless with the words of our songs or the words of our prayers because they matter, because it matters that we ascribe true things, true qualities about our God. So the first line tells us who. The second line tells us what. The third line tells us why. Why should we ascribe these things to the Lord? Why should we come before him and worship him? It says that we should worship him because the glory is due his name. Worship is due God. He is worthy of our worship. And therefore, we worship him. And particularly, David says that the glory is due his name. And the Lord's name is the Lord's revelation of himself to his people, which again highlights the fact that when we come before God, the glory is due his name in the way that he has shown himself to be to us. Our worship is always informed by God's revelation, his self-revelation. We can't know him apart from him coming to us and saying, this is who I am. So our worship is due that God. Our worship is due the God that shows himself to us in scripture and in creation, the God who reveals himself in his son. We need to go to God's revelation to lead us in our worship. I really love uh, reading J.I. Packer, and I was really sad this summer to, when he passed away, when he died. Um, spent a lot of that morning just reading articles that people had written about him um, just because his he has this has had this beautiful way of being able to describe deep theology in this really accessible way for us to be able to read and to be able to understand our God as he's revealed himself to be and if you're looking for a little book if you're maybe new into trying to study theology trying to study and learn about the attributes of God or who he is J.I. Packer wrote this little book called Concise Theology. That's a really good introductory level to like a variety of theological topics. And one of the chapters that he wrote is just simply titled Glory. It's titled Glory. And he has a subtitle to that chapter that is so insightful. Just the subtitle of the chapter, you probably could skip the rest of the chapter and you will have learned enough to chew on for a day just in looking at the subtitle. So I want to read the subtitle of J.I. Packer's chapter on glory to us. It shows us something about God's glory and how that relates to our worship. God's glory showing requires glory giving. It's simple, right? It's so profound. God's, God's glory showing requires glory giving. And I think you can flip that statement around as well. That glory giving 
flows from beholding God's glory showing. Glory giving flows from beholding God's glory showing. And that's precisely what we see uh, here in Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2 that we've looked at, are a call to worship, to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, in the glory that he's shown to us. We're called to worship along with the angels. And then verses 3 through 9 give us the reason for that glory giving, the reason for our worship. And it's, the reason is God's glory showing in a massive thunderstorm. So we have that relationship between glory giving and glory showing. So let's look at verses three through nine, and let's try to look with eyes that are open to behold God's glory showing. And that's our second main point. We must behold the displays of the king's glory and power. We must behold the displays of the king's glory and power. The Psalms, uh, as we've been going through them this summer, you've probably noticed already that the Psalms are full of imagery. It's one of the classic pieces of Hebrew poetry, that they're just full of all these metaphors and these rich word pictures that are meant to fill our senses. They're meant to, to make our imaginations really be able to picture what's going on. And I think the imagery in Psalm 29 might be my favorite imagery in all of the Psalms. So as we were uh, listening, going through the list of psalms we were going to do this summer, and we were deciding who was going to preach what. Josh gave me a little bit of freedom to choose what I wanted to preach, and I just wanted to preach Psalm 29 because I love this imagery. I love the imagery of the thunderstorm that we see here. So let's look at that. In these seven verses, verses 3 through 9, I already mentioned, and you guys noticed and saw, that there's the voice of the Lord repeated seven times. The voice of the Lord. And the word here for voice is translated sometimes, not all the time, but translated occasionally in the Old Testament as the word thunder. So in Exodus 9, when you have the plagues in Egypt and you have hail, there was thunder that accompanied the hail. And the word for thunder in Exodus 9 is the same word here for voice. In Exodus 19, when you had Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, you see that there is thunder coming from the mountain. And the thunder from the mountain in Exodus 19 is the same word again here for thunder. And then even this psalm makes the connection between voice and thunder. It says, the voice of the Lord is over the water, the God of glory thunders. And the way Hebrew poetry works, those two lines are connected to each other. So we're made to read this and make a a mental connection. And it'd be easier if you were a Hebrew, uh, if you spoke Hebrew and you could read this and see that there's a word connection there. But we're, even in English, we can see we're meant to think of voice and thunder as going together. So when you go through Psalm 29 and you read these seven verses that give us this vivid picture of a thunderstorm, that phrase that's repeated over and over again, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, is meant to bring to mind to us the rolling thunder of a storm. We all know like as a storm passes over, you don't just get one clap of lightning. You have this steady crash and roll and boom of, boom of thunder that, that fills the whole storm. And the whole time it passes over, you're surrounded by this noise. And that's what we're supposed to have come to mind as we read this, is the voice of the Lord is like the rolling thunder of a storm. And I want us to look at God's power and his glory in this storm where the Lord is thundering. And let's start with the Lord's power. We're we're made to behold the Lord's power. 
the storm, starting in verse 3, it says that it begins out over the waters. And those waters would be the Mediterranean Sea. The storm began out over the sea. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to watch a storm out over the ocean or out over Lake Michigan, but it's an incredible thing to behold because you kind of have the whole sky open to you, right? You don't have all these trees and houses in the way. You can just look out over the water and you can see the whole storm. You can see the clouds. You can see the lightning and you can hear the distant thunder. And as that storm begins to roll towards shore, the waves begin to pick up. They begin to crash harder against the shore. The wind begins to pick up. And as that storm rolls up onto shore, it crashes against the shore. So it's an awesome thing to behold if you ever have a chance to go be on the Gulf Coast and watch a storm roll in. And the storm here in verse 5, we see that it rolls ashore onto Lebanon, which is just north of Israel. So it comes off the Mediterranean, it rolls on over Lebanon, and as it does that, it says that the storm breaks the cedars. It breaks the trees. And any Israelite reading this would recognize that the cedars here are the cedars of Lebanon. And the cedars of Lebanon aren't just any, any cedar trees. They were known for their might. They were known for their majesty. They were, they were famous for being these strong and huge cedar trees. So this isn't like that storm that rolls through here and takes that dead branch off of your tree or knocks over that rotting tree in your yard. This is the storm that rolls in and it flattens the strongest oak that's in your yard. This is a storm that is so powerful that it takes even the most mighty tree and just snaps them like twigs. So the storm rolls into Lebanon. It breaks the cedars in verse 5. And then in verse 6, it says, He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Syrian is another name for Mount Hermon which is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. So the storm is rolled off the sea, it's rolled through the cedars, and now it rolls up into the mountains. And Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain, the biggest mountain in that whole region, in that whole landscape. If you look up pictures of Mount Hermon afterward, you kind of have this, this big empty plain, and then all of a sudden you have this huge, not just like a, a tall, but even just kind of massive in how wide it is, this huge mountain and mountain range, just coming straight up off the plains. And so when it says that the Lord in this storm shakes uh, Syrian, makes it to skip like a young wild ox, it's talking about the power of the storm, making the whole mountain to quake. Just imagine the power of that, standing on this mountain and feeling the mountain shake underneath you when the wind blows and the thunder rolls. And all of these images, as we look at the storm, they're meant to portray the raw power and the majesty of the God who is showing himself in these storms. The storm is mightier than all of the things they would have thought of as mighty. For an Israelite, the sea was mighty, but the Lord was stronger. Psalm 93 verse 4 says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The Lord thunders over the waters. He is stronger than the sea. The Lord is stronger than the mightiest trees. The Lord makes the tallest and strongest mountain to quake and to shake. And as you go through this, you see that the Lord continues to show his might through the flashes of lightning. He shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. He has this power that, that frightens the animals, that causes them to give birth power that strips all of the leaves off of the trees, 
Our king is powerful, and we're meant to see that in the storm. But we also must behold the king's glory in the storm. I love looking at the response at the end of verse 9 after this huge explanation about the storm that the Lord is showing himself in. In verse 9, all those who are standing before the presence of God, when they witness the thunderstorm, they cry out, glory. They cry out, glory. Just at, at watching this storm, they cry, glory, glory be to God. So, as we ask the question, what does it mean to ascribe? I want to ask another question. What is God's glory? How should we define the glory of God? I think it's something, I mean, especially in Reformed circles, right? We love talking about the glory of God. We love listening maybe to like a a John Piper sermon where he goes, glory. You know, we love glory. We talk about glory all the time. But what is glory? What is this thing that we're talking about? That's actually a really hard question to answer on one level. It's hard to define God's glory. I love what Paul Tripp says when he tries to describe what God's glory is. He says this, no single drawing, no painting, photograph, or verbal description could ever capture glory. Glory isn't so much a thing as it is a description of a thing. Glory isn't a part of God. It's all that God is. Every aspect of who God is and every part of what God does is glorious. But even that is not enough of a description. Not only is he glorious in every way, but his very glory is glorious. With many other doctrines in scripture, we typically run to a couple of default passages that describe the issue at hand, and we feel as if we're able to walk away with some general understanding of the topic. But that strategy doesn't work with the doctrine of God's glory because God's glory lives above and beyond any type of description or definition. And he he goes on and on describing that more, but I didn't want to bore you with a two-page quotation. But he, he does, in the end, try to make a basic definition of God's glory. And I think it's a good one, but even he says that it's incomplete. Because again, you can't fully define God's glory. But he says that God's glory encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all he is. Right? So that's, that, even that isn't very specific. It's not saying this is glory right here. It's saying that glory is all of his goodness and his perfection and just kind of all of that. Like, all of that is God's glory. Right? I think that's the case with glory because glory is not so much something that we're made to define as it is something that we are made to behold. Glory isn't so much something to define and describe as it is something that we're made to look at. Glory is something we're supposed to see. We were made to look at glory. When we look at mountains, we see glory and we love it. When we look at the stars, we see glory and we love it. When we hear good music, we're beholding glory and we love it. But even more than all of that, we were made to behold the glory of God. We were made to see him in his beauty. And we were made to worship him for it. We were made to enjoy the glory of God shown to us. It's one of the things we were designed to do. It's part of who we were made to be. To see God's glory. To glorify him in his glory. And to enjoy his glory for all eternity. It's what we were made for. So I want to remind us here of our second main point, that we must 
behold the displays of the king's glory and power. And we behold that display in Psalm 29. But I think Psalm 29 is also inviting us to behold the displays of God's glory every single time that we see a thunderstorm. Every time that we see a thunderstorm, I believe we're made to say, God is glorious. God is powerful. We need to remember that as as Christians, we need to remember Romans 1, that God has made his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, clear in the things that he has made. And if that's true, then we should look at the things that he has made, and we should expect to see his glory there, and we should expect to worship him because of his display of glory. Some philosophers, many philosophers actually over the last century, have described how we currently live, at least live in the West, in what they call a disenchanted world. I feel like, I think we've mentioned this a couple times, but I think it it bears repeating here. These philosophers say that we live in a disenchanted world. And what they mean by that is that people in our age view the world or try to view the world as if God is not involved at all in what goes on. And I don't think ultimately we're able to do that as humans and we're fooling ourselves when we try, but people try to view at least the world as if God is not involved at anything in anything that occurs. And it's a result of, of materialism and naturalism that views the world, like this physical world, right, that we live in as all that there really is. And so in this disenchanted view, you could, you could look at a thunderstorm and you could say that storm is glorious, but you'd end there. Or you could look at a, th- at a sunset and say that sunset is beautiful, but ultimately that sunset is just the way that light passes through the atmosphere, right? When it comes in at a lower angle and it shows us a different spectrum of light, right? And that's true. And I think when we know all of those details, it actually causes us to glorify God more because of the complexity he's built into his world. But that's not simply it, right? And how often as Christians are we influenced by that way of viewing the world? How often have we kind of soaked up that disenchanted way of looking at God's creation? We're not supposed to just say, what an awesome thunderstorm. We see a thunderstorm. We do say, what an awesome thunderstorm. But we're also meant to say, glory be to God. We look at a sunset and we don't just see a beautiful sunset. We say, glory be to God. If you want to learn how to do that, like just hang out with Andrew Molesky for a while. He, he does that. I mean, we were, we were down in Ikea a few weeks ago, me and Lexi and Allie and Andrew getting some furniture for their house. And on the way back, there was a sunset. And it was one of those sunsets where there's open sky and then there's a layer of clouds above the open sky. So when the, the sun came through that opening, it lit up the whole underside of all of the clouds that were coming out above us. And it was just beautiful. It was one of those ones, you know, sometimes you get orange. Sometimes in a sunset, you get pink or red. This was one of those ones that was just gold, right? It was just this beautiful gold. And when it does that, it just kind of, you know, bathes the whole world in this gold color. Just like the whole world turns gold for a little while. And as we're driving along, we're looking at the sunset. And Andrew literally cries, literally like in his wonderful way, says, glory, glory, glory. I think he did a threefold glory like when talking about the glory and he started us off singing the doxology just right in the car we just started singing praise the lord right praise god from whom all blessings flow and that's the right response that's how we need to respond as christians we need to live with eyes 
that are open, eyes that are open to beholding the glory of God and the things that he's made. And this helps us, right? This helps us in our worship. I don't know about you, although I'm sure this isn't unique to me, but sometimes I struggle to have a heart that connects with the things that I am saying in worship. Sometimes I'm singing holy, 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 and I wish that my heart was connecting with my mouth as I said those things, right? I'm, I might be ascribing them, but is, is my heart ascribing those things to God as well? And when that happens, when we struggle to have a heart that longs to worship, the answer is not to look deeper inside of ourselves. The answer isn't to try to just muster up by our own strength some deeper love for God that will finally make our worship genuine. If we want to have genuine worship, what we should instead do is look outside of ourselves. What we should do is look at the glory of God that he has displayed for us. We should go to God's word and we should see who he is. We should look at creation and we, we should see what God has revealed. And when we see who God is there, the natural response is that beholding his glory showing will lead us to glory giving. It will lead us to worship. So again, if you struggle with that, look outside of yourself and look at the glory of God that is on display and let that drive you into worship. So we've seen that we must worship the king of glory and power in our first point, and that we must behold the displays of the king's glory and power. Now we come to our last point, verses 10 through 11, that we must trust the king of glory and power. We must trust the king of glory and power. And what I want us to see just in these last couple of verses is that how we respond to the pictures and displays of God's glory and power depends largely on whether or not this king that is put on display is for us or against us. How we respond depends on whether this king is for us or against us. Because a mighty king instills hope and confidence in his subjects, but strikes fear into his enemies. Right? A mighty king, if you're one of his subjects, it brings you hope and it brings you confidence. If you're one of his enemies, a mighty king is frightening to you and frightening to us. Look at verse 10 here. The Lord... The Lord sits enthroned. See the, the king language there. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The word that's translated the flood here occurs in only one other place, only one other section of scripture in the whole Old Testament. And you could probably guess where it is. It's in, it's in Genesis 6 through 11. It's the flood in the days of Noah, the flood of judgment upon a rebellious earth. And so... I think it's intentionally used. There's other words that David could have used here for flood, but he chose a word that's used in only that one other place. And he's calling to mind the God who has power over his creation is also the God who has used that power in judgment and justice against his enemies. And so if we're God's enemies, this whole display of power is frightening. It's scary. This is the God who brings judgment against his enemies. But again, if he's for us, if the king is for us, then his great power and his great glory bring us peace. They bring us comfort. Look at verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And I could name a bajillion circumstances here, but just want you to think over this last year. 2020 has been a crazy year. It's been a crazy year for a lot of us. And have you experienced circumstances 
and trials this year that require strength? Have you been aware in a special way this year of your own weakness? Are you currently in a storm of this life where you need strength? Well, the good news is the God of the thunderstorm is the God who strengthens his people. His might on our behalf is a fantastic thing. Have those same storms and circumstances brought you fear or despair or confusion? Well, then we can look to the God who is powerful, who brings peace for his people. Just like the peace that comes after a storm. If you've ever stepped outside after a storm and there's the calm and the smell of the fresh air after the rain has gone by, it's just beautiful. And the storm in verses 3 through 9 I believe, is meant to point us to the first storm in the fall in Israel, which would usher in the rainy season. So where the land would be dry, the land would be parched, this storm that would bring so much destruction, the storm that would come in and break the cedar trees, would also leave the landscape, leaving it refreshed. The storm would come in, and the plants would come, and the, the flowers would blossom as a result of the rain. The destructive storm would leave peace in its wake. And I love how Alexander McLaren describes this. He's a preacher from the 19th century. And it seems like preachers during that era had this ability to just say things with a beauty that we can't, or at least I can't. Um, But Alexander McLaren says it this way. Just listen to this. Faith can listen to the wildest crashing thunder in quiet confidence that the angels are saying glory as each peal rolls. And that when the last low mutterings are hushed, earth will smile the brighter and deeper peace will fall on trusting hearts. So beautiful. So the big question that we're left with then is, how do we know if this thundering king is for us or against us? How do we know? Because if he's against us, then we have no hope to, but to stand before his throne in judgment because we've broken his law. We are dirty. We are guilty. And if we come before this holy and glorious and powerful judge, we don't have any hope. But we can have hope. And we can have hope that can be found in a different manifestation of God's glory. Not a manifestation of power like in a thunderstorm, We can have hope because of a a manifestation of God in condescension. We can have hope because the thundering king of all creation displayed his glory most beautifully in his plan to save sinners in Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who came in the flesh as a man to live the perfection that we could never live, to die on the cross in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins. God in his condescension in Christ came, and came that we could be with him, that he would be our king, our king who is for us. So what should we do? We should look. Just like we should look and behold the displays of God's glory and creation, let's look with the eyes of faith and behold God's work and his grace for us in Christ. And because of that, let's cry glory. Because of that, let's worship our God. Let me pray, and then we're going to have a chance to do that, to respond in worship with our last song. So let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you for displaying your glory through your creation, displaying your glory in your word, and through your Son. Father, we just ask that you would give us eyes by your Spirit to see your glory, 
that you would give us hearts that would respond in praise and work in us a deeper trust in your power because we can know that you as our king will work all things for good for us, your chosen people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.